You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Ross asked me to speak today on the parable of the talents. And so, uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look in this series we've been doing on, on talent, uh, on parables. We're going to look at the very unique uh, passage about the this parable of the talents. But before we get into the, the uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, the parable itself, I want us to get a little bit of context as to how this fits into the uh, the biblical setting and into the cultural setting, uh, because I think it's very important for us to understand. Uh, this, par- this parable in particular in terms of context. So it's in Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn there, but the first clue would be that it's in Matthew chapter 25. There are 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. 25 is pretty close to the end. The, the story of Jesus' life that starts in you know, with his birth in the early chapters of Matthew and then his ministry throughout most of the book. And then it, it concludes with a, a huge emphasis on the last week of his life. And as you recall, the children of Israel went to Jerusalem three times a year. They would gather there at the Festival of Weeks and the Festival of Tabernacles. But the granddaddy celebration of all, the time when they were really supposed to come, was for the Passover. And so the children of Israel would all come together in the uh, into Jerusalem and have this great kind of family camp experience. They'd be there with their friends, they would, would uh, meet their relatives that they hadn't seen for a while, and they would sing and worship together, and they would have special religious meetings. But it was a time of kind of vacation and spiritual uplift, all wrapped into to one big week of celebration in Jerusalem. Jesus started going when he was a young boy. Remember? He was 12 years old, and he is in the, the temple. His family is headed back toward Galilee. And about a day later, they realize Jesus isn't with him. He's still in the temple area talking to the, talking to the, uh, the priests and the, the rabbis and, and confounding these scholars. And so Jesus' family has to come back, and they find him there. And now it's 21 years later. He's back in the temple area, and he is, again, having this, these discussions with the religious leaders. But this time, it's not a kind of a, a wonder child that is, uh, is confounding them in a kind of humorous way, and they're kind of intrigued with this little fair-haired boy that uh, is the, uh, the prodigy of theology. Now, now Jesus is the, the focal point of of a threat to the religious structure. And so there are conflicts. He's come into the city on, uh, on Palm Sunday. There's been a great celebration. And then he begins these dialogues. And he argues with the Sadducees. And he confounds the Pharisees. All of the religious leaders are taking it uh, in these conflicts. They're always getting humiliated and defeated. And Jesus is winning over the crowds as they love his interaction with him. I was thinking, you know, this is 21 years later. So some of those young scholars are now the old scholars. They remember Jesus as a little 12-year-old, and now they are confronted with him as a, a full-blown rabbi with, uh, with these conversations that take place. Jesus and his disciples have had 
some of these conflicts, and Jesus pronounces a series of woes upon the, uh, upon the, the religious establishment and brings these condemnations upon them. And then they leave and they're headed through the, the temple area. And at the start of chapter 24, these disciples, 11 of them, are from the Galilean area, which is kind of Appalachia, all right? It's, it's, it's the country bumpkin part of Israel. And they come down to Jerusalem now, and they're looking at these buildings, and they go, Jesus, look at the size of these buildings. These are huge. We don't have anything like this back in Cana. Bethsaida doesn't have anything more than a two-story building. Look at these. And they start to talk to Jesus about all these monstrous buildings and the, the, the amazing city that they're experiencing. Jerusalem was like, it was the center of their culture. It was the center of their religion. It was the center of their politics. It was the center of their economy. This was everything. It was like New York City and Washington, D.C. and Tyler, Texas, all rolled into one, one major city there. All of the, everything good about their country was right there. And these kind of hillbillies are showing up, and they're amazed at this wondrous city that's there. And Jesus looks at them and said, yeah, those are big buildings, all right. They're all going to be knocked flat. There's not going to be one stone left on top of another. It's all going to be wiped out. Well, the disciples... They're kind of staggered. They look at these magnificent structures that represent the, the economy, that represent the religious practice and the government, and they're going, wow, this is, this is serious. So they go out to the Mount of Olives, and they have a conversation with Jesus, and they, they dialogue with him, and they come with, with two questions. They're on the outside of the city. It's just the disciples and Jesus, and they say, Jesus, well, when is this going to happen? And and what are some of the signs we should be looking for when this takes place? Jesus comes back and he says, you know, let's start with question number two. Here are some of the things you need to be looking for. And then he starts to outline some just dreadful things that are about to happen in, uh, in the world that are going to come up. And he, um, he looks at the false teachers are going to come and wars are going to come. There's going to be religious persecution. It's going to be terrible. There's going to be an increase in wickedness. At some point, you're going to have to run for your lives. This is, this is going to be horrible. Don't go back to the, your house to get anything. Just take off for the hills. That's how bad it's going to be. But as for your first question, I can't tell you. I don't have an answer. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only our Father in heaven has that timetable. He knows when it's going to all start to unfold. I can tell you the things that are going to give you signs of this happening, but uh, it's really up to the Father to, to let us know. He's the only one that has the clue as to when this is going to happen. And so Jesus says, you know, it's, I want to tell you a few stories. He begins a little story, ends chapter 24, with a story about a, a guy who uh, is a little mini story. Then he has three major parables in chapter 25 that flow out of this conversation about the end times. And in the first parable, it's a parable of the ten virgins. These people are waiting for a wedding. Five of them are prepared. They have oil in their lamps, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. In their culture, they had it flip-flop from, from us. In our culture, when the bride comes walking down the aisle, everybody stands up, and she's the most important part of the, uh, of the wedding ceremony, as it should be, my dear. And uh, 
But in their culture, it was the guy, it was the groom, and he was the most important person. And you have 10 people who have become lackadaisical, they become kind of uh, frivolous, they lost their focus, and they weren't really waiting for the, for the bridegroom to come. He hadn't come so far. He hasn't come. It's been a long time. And bingo, he shows up, and some are prepared and some are not. And he says, live your life prepared for the bridegroom to come. Be prepared for Jesus' return. No matter when it takes place, be ready. Live expectantly. And then, at the end, the third parable, we'll come back to the second one, the third parable is about people who are gracious and compassionate and who share, who give uh, support to those who are in need and how there's going to be a judgment and accountability for how we treat one another in, in this life. So, so live graciously and live generously, live, live compassionately as well. Be ready, be gracious. And then we come to the second one. There's a, the middle par- parable is the one where we're focused on, and that is the parable of the talents. It's a, uh, a, a fascinating uh, little parable, as we're going to see, but again, we need some cultural context. And it's about a master who goes on a journey and he leaves his fortune to three of his servants, tells them to, you know, make this money multiply while I'm gone, and then I'm going to come back and we'll check in. Well, you got to understand that people didn't travel very often in those days. It was a dangerous proposition. You remember Paul traveled a lot, but he ended up almost drowning in a shipwreck and he had a number of, of problems along the way. It was dangerous. There were highwaymen, there were uh, physical dangers and, and all kinds of things out there that made it difficult to, to travel. So it wasn't some, something that people did on vacations. Uh, it was usually for business purposes or for political purposes that you would, would travel. So this guy travels and he has a fortune. He has some, some money and he has to decide what to do with it. Now, one of the problems is that we don't use the word talent in the way that it's used in this passage. The word talent is a measure or a weight. Um, any of you know what a cord of wood is? You kind of know what a cord of wood is. Four feet high, four feet wide, eight feet long. I didn't know that. I had to look it up, okay? So, but that's, you know, it's a measure that we don't use very often. I had a friend in Scotland who was very proud. He said, I've been on a diet. I've lost one and a half stones. And I go, oh my goodness, I didn't know you had kidney problems. <laughs> no, I, a stone, I found out, is 14 pounds. So if you lose a stone and a half, you've lost 21 pounds. That's pretty good. But it's a measure that we don't use very often. And a talent is like cord for wood or stone for body weight. Uh, a talent is a, about from 60 to 80 pounds. But usually people think of it about 75 pounds of materials. All right? So if... If someone had 75 pounds of something, he would, be, he would have a talent. In their culture, it might have been 75 pounds of gold, or it might have been 75 pounds of bronze. It was probably 75 pounds of silver. Silver was the common uh, material that they would use for commerce, and so it was probably a, a talent was 75 pounds of silver, which would roughly be about $25,000 today. So, he has a couple hundred thousand dollars, 
and it may have been gold where you see these are millions of dollars of things. In reality, it's probably, probably about 25,000 per talent. That's just my, my best guess on it. And he has to decide what to do with this while he's gone. He said, I can dig a hole, I can find a cave, I can do something to hide my money, or I can put it on deposit with the bankers, but in their culture there was no government regulation. Bankers were kind of loan sharks, shysters, uh, there wasn't, they were not the most noble of people, as they are today, I'm sure, if there are any bankers here. But uh, in those days, it was, it was a very unregulated and risky thing to put your money with a banker. You'd want to be checking in and watching it. You certainly wouldn't want to give it to a banker and then be gone for an undisclosed amount of time. And so the, the third option is to entrust your wealth to, to your servants, to people that you could count on and have a, some sort of level of trust with them. And so that's what he does. Now he has three challenges before him. He says, I want this money to generate income. I want a good return on my investment. But I also need to preserve my capital. I want to preserve the, the funds. I don't want them to be lost. And I'd also like to see my servants grow and develop during this, this time. And so he, he weighs, you know, if I give it all to my really star performer, my really wise and experienced, highly talented uh, servant, I'm sure he could get it, but then I have this risk aversion thing that says I need to diversify. I need to give some to him and spread it out a little bit. And as he weighs it back and forth, he said, my best chance of a re good return is with this guy. I'm going to give him five eights. I'll give him five 75-pound bags of my, my silver. This up-and-comer, he's inexperienced, but he's a pretty good guy. I'm going to give him a quarter of it. I'll give him two bags. And then there's the other guy. I shouldn't, oh, okay. I'm going to give him one bag and see what he can do with it. I know he hasn't been great in the past, but I'm going to, I'm going to entrust him with one bag and hopefully he will perform better than he has in the past. We know this because he says he gave them to each of them, each according to their abilities. He'd already watched them. He'd already been observing them. He'd seen how they had responded in the past. And he said, this guy's worth five, this guy's worth two, this guy's worth one. I'm going to distribute my wealth for security purposes. I'm going to try to make sure that it's well cared for, and I'm going to see if we can get some good return on it. And hopefully all of them will perform well and, and grow through this experience. The... Um, It says he went on his journey, and we have very little information about what happens next. We just know that the five-talent guy, it said he went at once. Didn't take him a lot of planning time, didn't take him a lot of worry. Seems as though he knew what he was doing, invested the money, bought a vineyard, bought some hides and turned them into harnesses. I don't know what he did. There's no information about how he invested or put this money to use. He just went out immediately. He did it, and uh, he was very successful. The second guy goes out, and uh, it says, so also, the second one. Now, so also could be very much a, just a literary connection that says, and just like I told you about the first guy, uh, the second guy did the same thing. Or it could be that so also means that the second servant 
went to school on the first servant. The second servant had a mentoring relationship in a formal way, or he just watched what the other one did, but somehow he learned from the experienced servant, the five-talent servant, and so also he followed his pattern, and he was also successful. He did well and saw good things happen. He obeyed, put his money to work, and saw uh, the results. They both ended up doubling their, their money. And then we have the third guy, third servant. He, uh, he comes to the, uh, to the situation with his, his money, he has his bag, and it said he went off, he hid the money, and you know, there's no sign that he connected in any way with the others, and he didn't put the money to work. He disobeyed and did not follow the directives of the master. In this passage, there's not a direct command that says, put this money to work until I return. We pick that up from the parallel passage in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus gives a very similar passage, and he explicitly tells the, the servants there to go put the money to work until I return. But it's Im certainly implied in this passage that the command is, take this money, put it to work, and let's see some return on the investment. This guy doesn't do that. It says he, he went off and he hid. Going off and hiding are typical responses that we have uh, that are inappropriate and dangerous. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they went off, they hid, uh, they, tried to alien, they tried to move away from where God was. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. It's a very dangerous place to be. Instead of watching what the five-talent or the two-talent servants did, he moved to a place of isolation. He went off, and then he hid the, the talent that had been entrusted to him. He moved to a place of isolation, and he uh, came to a place that was void of transparency in his life. Uh, he didn't obey, he didn't put the money to, to use, and he ended up in a very dangerous and ineffective place in his life. Whenever we move into isolation, whenever we put up masks that uh, uh, hinder us from becoming transparent, we put ourselves in places of danger and ineffectiveness. You know, God wants us to be in relationships. He designed us for that. He wants us to be involved in one another's lives. He wants us to have the sense of community because there are things we have to learn from one another, there are things we need to be encouraged by one another. And there's also an accountability that comes from engaging with one another. This guy lost all three of those opportunities. There was no one to instruct him, no one to encourage him, and certainly no one there to hold him accountable. He just went home, plugged in the Xbox, and kicked back. He didn't do anything. And that's all we have about the story. There's not much more. It's a pretty simple parable. Until we come to the, the next section. And uh, that's where the master returns. Now, the... The one talent guy might have thought, if I hide this and we find out that the master drowned in a shipwreck, I can go back and dig it up and it'll be mine. 
I think he was just, as the story goes, just kind of a careless, lazy, wicked person who didn't want the responsibility. But we shall see as it goes forward. Um, Tom, if you could put the... Uh... Okay. When the master returns, he starts this accountability process, and he asks them, uh, he doesn't even ask them, they just come and give their little report. So there's going to be seven parts to this interaction with each of, the, each of the servants. There's the presentation, and then there is the master's evaluation, and then there is a reflection of change that takes place within their relationship. So first of all is a presentation. The first guy comes, the five-talent guy, and he gives his report. The second guy comes, and he gives his report. And the third one comes, and he gives excuses and blame. And all the reasons why this didn't happen, and how it's not his fault, and he just starts to... It's very typical in our lives. When things go well, we want to tell people. We want to share the good news. And when we have been disobedient, and when we have not been productive, we always want to start pointing the fingers and coming up with excuses, blaming others, and that's exactly what the one-talent person did. So, the master responds to each of these, and the first response uh, to the five-talent individual is a general one. He says, hey, well done. Doesn't that feel good? You've... You've come to your boss, you said, hey, I got the project done, we got the contract, great job, well done. And then he evaluates his character. He says, you're a good person. And then he looks at his productivity and he says, you have been faithful. He says, Thank you, well done. You're a good guy. You have done a, a, a good job. You have performed well. Second guy, well done, good character. Faithful service. Uh, boom. And then the one talent guy comes. There's a rebuke. So, you uh, have these things that you've blamed me for. You said that I was a harsh man, that I reaped where I didn't sow, or that I've harvested where I didn't plant. Well, if you were really that aware of how tough a guy I am, you should have been at least wise enough to go to the bankers and get some, some interest on the money. He gives him a, a stern rebuke for how he had behaved. All right? He said, you know, you're a wicked person. You're a disobedient person. You're a person who has some serious character flaws. And then he says, you're a lazy person. You haven't done anything productive. You haven't made an an impact with your life and with what I've entrusted to you. He looks at the general the response and gives a, a, a response to them. And then he evaluates their character and then he evaluates their productivity right across the board. Each one is analyzed and each one is, uh, is evaluated. Character first, productivity second. But both of them are interconnected. Both of them are are woven into a single presentation, good and faithful, good and faithful, wicked, lazy. They're all tied together. All right, and then we get the, uh, the changes that take place in the relationship. And so the first guy, uh, he's given greater opportunities. I gave you five, now I'm going to let you take care of ten of my talents 
You're going to be responsible for two times what you have been responsible in the past. Greater ex uh, uh, responsibility has been expanded. As a matter of fact, number two, we have uh, a relational closeness that takes place. He says, come. I want to I uh, experience greater bonding, a deeper relationship with you. Come, and you know what that is going to mean? It's going to be a celebration. There's going to be joy. It's going to be an emotional engagement that's going to take place. He said, hey, this is great. I'm going to give you more responsibility. We're going to be closer, and it's going to be a party. It's going to be fun. Second guy comes along. Same thing, he said, you did a great job. I'm going to let you take control of, of four of my talents now. Come, we're going to have a party. Let's all join together and celebrate. But when we look at what happens with the one talent individual, the one that was given a responsibility and he failed, he lost his opportunity, his talent, and it was given to the ten talent. Now that bothered me for a long time. So why did the guy that was rich get richer? You got to remember that all of this is still owned by the master. This is not their money. This is only their responsibility. This money has not been generating any return. And so he says, I'm going to put it with the guy that I think has the greatest chance of playing some catch up with uh, this money. So I'm going to give it to my star performer to see if he can, uh, can make it uh, produce a little bit more. The first, uh, the one talent guy is distanced, he's cast out. And that casting out creates an emotional response that is weeping, there is pain, there is separation. So the, the, these are written in contrast. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful story with uh, very exacting structure to it. There's, it's very easily seen that there's, Jesus is trying to explain some things in, in very stark contrast. The first two, you're going to have more responsibility. You're going to uh, have a, a greater sense of closeness, and we are going to have a party. And for the one talent guy that was wicked and lazy, he's going to lose his talent. There's going to be distancing. There's going to be weeping. There's going to be emotional pain and emotional distance along the way. So, the big question, what in the world are the talents? What is this thing that's in the bag that 75 pounds of goodie we're given? And whether it's two or five or one, what is it that has been given to us? Well, Augustine and many others uh, think that it was the gospel. It's given to us. And as we share with others, it's multiplied, and the gospel is... And who am I to argue with Augustine? But, oh well, he was wrong. Uh, a number of my professors, and probably some of you, think that these talents are spiritual gifts that God has entrusted to us, and that we should employ... And if we use them, they will be multiplied and good things will... I'm not so certain that that's quite it. I think the gospel and spiritual gifts are all part of this, but I think it's better to understand the talents as opportunities. What are the opportunities that God has entrusted to us so that we can in turn 
make a difference in the lives of others and, in, and expand our influence for the cause of Christ. To see the gospel go forward, but what are the opportunities that have been entrusted to us? Some have lots of opportunities, some have a few. We all have, we all have some. The reason I come up with that is because one of the people who was, stand, <coughs> who was sitting there in the Garden of Gethsemane that had the questions, who'd been walking through the, the temple area with Jesus and had experienced this conversation with him was Peter. Peter uh, had gone through the, uh, the week of, of, well, he's gone with three years, but this incredibly intense week in Jerusalem. He'd been there when Jesus explained this to them in Matthews 24 and 25. And in his little epistle in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, the end of all things is at hand. You know, the end is upon us, just like Jesus told me back in Matthew 24 and 25. Therefore, and then he lists several things. He said, be clear-minded and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. He goes through this whole list of things, and then he kind of concludes, comes to the end of this. He says, use whatever gift has been given you and speak if you speak, speak the words of God. If you serve, serve with the strength that God provides so that in everything, God will be glorified. God has entrusted us with opportunities to speak and to serve. God has given us opportunities to say a good word, an encouraging word, to share the gospel, to put our arm around someone and comfort them in a time of, of need, to write a thank you note or to write a a note of, of condolence to someone. God has given us the opportunities to engage in people's lives and to be a, a word of encouragement to them. And he's also given us the opportunities to step into people's lives and to serve, to, to help out within the church or to go to Griffin, to read to a child up there, to, to be involved in, in mentoring and tutoring uh, in that. To you know, There's a whole list of things here in the... Uh, there it is. You know, the, these mission trips, some of them, I'm sure, are going to be the lead vacation Bible school type programs where we have a chance to speak. Others are going to be out there painting houses and, and fixing uh, uh, buildings. There's all kinds of ways to get involved. It's not limited to a particular type of, of event. There's a, a massive number of opportunities that are before us. What is the word that we can say this week to encourage someone? What is the word we can say this week to make a difference in someone's life? What is that act of service that we can do this week, the gift that we can give, the help that we can provide to, uh, to encourage and to support and to invest into the lives of others? How can we take those opportunities and use them as opportunities to help others to develop ourselves, and to glorify, glorify God. So I think there are at least five principles out of this story that we want to hang on to, that we want to keep before us. And as we reflect on the parable of the talents, and in this context, the parable of the opportunities that are here, Jesus said, I can't tell you when I'm coming back. I can give you some clues as to what's going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. It's going to get 
worse and worse and worse. And along the way, I want you to live expectantly. I want you to live generously and compassionately. And what that looks like, I'm going to give you opportunities. And I want you to engage those opportunities. I want you to use those opportunities to make a difference in the lives of the people around, it, around you, to grow and develop yourself, and to glorify God in the process. So, first thing, uh, by way of reminder, is it's dangerous to go into isolation or into hiding. God wants us to engage with each other. He wants us to be a part of one another's lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, fascinating passage, it says two are better than one because they work better. You get a good return for your investment if you have two people working together. That's what he said. Don't go off in isolation. Find a team. Find a group that you can get together with. They can do something and serve together. But more than that, the passage goes on in Ecclesiastes to say if one person falls down, there's somebody there to pick them up. We all fall down. We all have those moments when we find ourselves in the dirt, face down. Sometimes it's just bad choices that we make. We make a bad investment. We make a, a stupid decision at work and bad things happen. But sometimes they're moral failures as well. Sometimes there are issues where we just make a, a, a very wrong choice that has ethical and moral implications. Whatever it is, when we find ourselves on the ground, it's tough to get up. We need people around us who can help us get back on our feet <clears throat> emotionally and spiritually and financially and relationally. We need somebody to come alongside and say, hey, yeah, you, you, you fell pretty hard, but, you know, we can take care of that skin knee. We can, you know, get a patch on that. We can help you. You need someone to come alongside and to lift you up and to get you back on the road. The second thing he says is that, hey, if you're cold at night and there's no one there to keep you warm, Sometimes life leaves us abandoned. Sometimes we find ourselves all alone. Uh, a divorce, uh, a broken relationship, uh, a betrayal, uh, a child that rebels. Whatever it is where we feel that we are alone, that's when we need the body of Christ and friends and, and others to come alongside and to provide the human support and the, the comfort, uh, the warmth of, of other relationships to let us know that we're okay and this abandonment that we're feeling is, uh, is going to be overcome by other relationships that God is going to provide in our lives. And then he says, sometimes we're attacked. And if uh, there's no one there to defend us. And sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the attacks of our circumstances or from the attacks of, of others. And we need someone there to protect us and to encourage us. See, isolation is a dangerous, dangerous place. It's a, uh, a very awkward place place for us to go, to be. It puts us in a, a vulnerable position that can be very destructive in, uh, in our lives. We think, if I can find my notes here, uh, here it is, we think that isolation will provide us with security, but actually isolation makes us vulnerable. With relationships, we think that we'll have to become vulnerable but actually, in our vulnerability, we find security. Don't be like the one-talent individual who took his opportunity, buried it, and went off into a world of isolation. Find others that can come alongside to help you when you have problems, 
but also can, can multiply the impact of your investment in life. Secondly, the, uh, the issue is God wants us to look for, oops, excuse me, it's easy to bury those opportunities that come our way. We bury them generally in three ways. One is through busyness, and one is through misplaced priorities, and the other is through fear. Sometimes we just get so busy. We don't leave margins in our lives to have those conversations and to, uh, to provide uh, a morning of help to someone who, who needs it. We, we say yes to too many things, thinking that busyness is the, the coin of the realm. It's the thing that is of value. It's the thing that makes us important. If our schedule is busy, then we are significant. If our schedule is not full and we're not busy, then we have no value, and we're not as important as those people who are, are very busy. We need to, to make some decisions about what we're going to say yes to and what we're going to say no to, and we do that through establishing significant and godly priorities. We need to set priorities, and we need to, to make those decisions about what is important and, and what is not. See, most of us think that the props are the play. Most of us think that the, the things in our lives are what are important and make our lives significant. But in reality, those are just the props. Our house, our cars, our boats, our vacations, our degrees, our, our jobs. Those, the nouns of our lives, those things of our life, they're all important. They're significant, but they're not, <clears throat> they are not the core of our lives. The plot and the character development are what make a story, not the background stuff. And we, so, we get so absorbed in making sure that we have the bigger and the better and the best and all of the, the stuff that involves so much of our time and our energy and our resources that we forget that what really is important is the character development and the plot in the story. That's what's, what's significant. We need to invest in those things that are going to help us develop our character and are going to develop our story that's going to align our story with God's story. It's going to help us to, to participate in that big story that God is, is writing in the ages. And then finally, there's the issue of fear. Sometimes we bury our opportunities because we're just afraid. And we're not so much afraid of the master, we're just afraid of failure. We're just afraid that we're not going to do as well as somebody else and our cookies aren't going to taste as good as their cookies, so we're not going to bring any cookies here. You know, I'm not going to be able to teach as well as somebody else is going to be able to teach, and so I'm just not going to teach. Or I'm not... We kind of get afraid that this comparative thing is going to put us in a bad light, and so we're just not going to do it. We need to get past that, that fear and the comparison that's out there. We need to say, hey, God, it's not very much. It's just one talent. I don't have as much as somebody else, but I'm going to use what I have to make the biggest impact I can for you and to see uh, things improve and grow in the areas that you have entrusted to me. Third is that God wants us to look for opportunities to serve and to speak. As, as Peter has said, you know, that's the, the heart of, of our investment of, uh, of our lives, finding ways to say a good word and to do a good thing. That's what we need to work on. It's going to help others, we're going to develop and grow, and God is going to be glorified in the midst. The fourth thing is that we need to remember that character and productivity are both critical. 
Oftentimes, we think that, you know, it's just about who we are, and if we get anything done, that's great too. And then other people are locked into productivity. I need to get these projects done. And if I have to, you know, knock a few people down on the way to do it, uh, getting it done, that's all right as well. God says, you know, we're going to hold you accountable for both being a good person and a faithful person. We're going to judge you based on this good and wicked continuum, as well as we're going to look at the faithful and lazy continuum as well. Where are you on that, uh, on those, uh, that scale? We need to recognize that being a good person and getting the job done are both critically important. Sometimes uh, I bump into folks who I think are really nice, but I just don't see them getting much done. And others getting a lot done, but they're just not the kind of person that is uh, presenting Christ well to the world. We need to recognize that both of those are important. So, last question, last uh, issue. Who are you? Are you the one-talent guy? Are you the two-talent servant? Or are you the five-talent servant? Usually when I have these conversations with folks, uh, the vast majority of people, you're thinking right now, you're going, yeah, I'm a two-talent person. We all kind of get in that Goldilocks zone. Some are a little bit more, some a little bit less. I could look up, there's somebody that's a little bit better than me. There's a few people that are a little worse. I'm kind of that two-talent B minus student, I'm kind of right in the middle of the, of the pack. And that may be true. I have a few people that are very honest and they just say, I'm a one talent person. Never had anybody say, I'm a five talent guy. I'm, you know, we all think that's a little arrogant to, to put out there, and it is, if we see the talents as something that's innate within us, if it, has, it reflects on who we are. But in reality, he's talking about opportunities that are being entrusted to us. He's talking about opportunities that we need to take advantage of. As citizens of the United States, with hot and cold running water, with electricity, with more than $2 a day to live on, we are five talent people. We have incredible opportunities that most of the world doesn't understand and doesn't uh, uh, can't even imagine. There's, there's just an incredible blessing that we have and opportunities that come our way that no one, no one else in the world enjoys these kind of, of blessings and opportunities. In reality, I think all of us in the room are probably five talent people because God has given us incredible resources, incredible opportunities. And my great fear is that all of us, uh, myself included, being a five-talent individual will take a one-talent response. They will take our five talents and bury them in our busyness and in our, our fear of, of failure and in our lack of priorities. And instead of, you know, being a one-talent person that squanders that resource, we're going to be five-talent servants that don't invest the opportunities uh, and use the things that God has placed before us to make a difference for Him. So, Look for opportunities to serve this week. Look for things to say to encourage someone. Look for opportunities to serve and to help to engage in other, uh, other people's lives. Let's not bury the talents and the opportunities that God puts before us. Let's pursue those chances to, to serve. Let's remember that character and productivity are both critical. God wants us to develop 
both of these areas because ultimately our goal, our desire in life is that God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray and then uh, Todd will come.